Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ring of Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Thursday, January 25th. What's the secret to a successful media merger? That's a very relevant question at this particular moment in Hollywood. Several major companies seem to be in play, or at least thinking about whether to buy, sell, or merge. But the history of media is filled with big deals that didn't quite work out as planned. The biggest of all time, AOL gobbling up Time Warner for $182 billion at the height of the dot-com boom in 2000. That ended in a colossal disaster. AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner also didn't work out, giving us the Warner Brothers discovery entity of today. Comcast, on the other hand, seems to be doing okay after buying NBC Universal and combining content with cable and broadband services. Yet Disney's $71 billion deal for most of Rupert Murdoch's Fox empire in 2019 is still an open question. Last month, it was reported that the CEOs of Warner Discovery and Paramount Global had lunch and discussed a merger. Yet the stock market punished both of their share prices. The suggestion, don't do it. I've been thinking a lot about the pros and cons of consolidation in creative businesses, especially in the global market. And driving all the deal-making are the bankers and advisors who quarterback these deals. So I thought it would be interesting to have a top banker on the show to discuss the deal-making landscape and media right now, especially on the global stage. And for that, there is no one better than Joe Ravage. Joe is the founder and partner of Rain, a boutique investment and merchant bank that's been involved in everything from the sale of dozens of sports teams to Lionsgate's deal to buy the Stars Channel and Endeavor's recent purchase of WWE. He's an advisor and investor with big entertainment, sports, and digital media companies, as well as earlier stage media companies. Before that, he was an investment maker at Goldman Sachs in the media sector. Perfect guy to talk about what's hot in the deal landscape in 2024, the appetite for tech companies to buy content companies, and what the secrets are to a successful deal in media and entertainment. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Joe Ravitch, who is founder, partner at Rain, the boutique investment and merchant fake that is involved in a ton of media deals. First of all, welcome, Joe. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. So I thought of your name 
when I started thinking at the beginning of this year what the year in media deal making might look like. And there's a lot of puzzles, a lot of puzzle pieces out there. And we don't quite know where everything is going to ultimately fit together, if it fits together at all. There's a lot of sectors that I feel like have been hot over the past couple of years that maybe are not as hot anymore. And I said, you know what, let's just ask Joe. So Joe, what is the deal market in 2024 going to look like in media and entertainment? Well, the deal market sucked in 2023. Look, I'd like to believe the world is going to calm down. I'd like to believe interest rates come down. I'd like to believe you don't have a highly interventionist FTC trying to stop consolidation, much needed consolidation in the media sector. But I think, as usual, regulation is behind where technology is and where consumers are. You know, one of the most interesting things I always tell people is the majority of video consumed in the world today is short form video, is like Instagram reels and stuff like that. It's not even long form. So the streamers have their own challenges, as we've seen, not just the big media companies that we deal with. But I think there's some sectors that, will re- that, that are hot, will remain hot, and are very exciting. And I think there's some areas that are going to get hot simply because of secular trends. So one hot area that, I, that obviously I've spent most of my career focused on is sports. It is the last bastion of truly premium content. Sports rights will continue to go up in price. There's so many more ways of monetizing sports. Give you the example. I sat down a few months ago with a, with a commissioner of one of the major U.S. leagues. And he said, you know, it's amazing. He said, three years ago, I never would have guessed that sports betting would generate revenue for my budget. And because there was a federal law against it. And the Supreme Court struck down the law for nonsensical reasons. So now we're, we're not even in the business and we're making money from sports betting. I'd never guess that selling our data would be worth anything, but our data contract just went from 20 million a year to 150 million a year. I didn't even know what crypto or NFTs was, and we're going to do meaningful money out of NFTs this year. So that's just to name a few. There were five other examples he gave me, but I think you're going to see increasing forms of monetization, increasing global audiences. You know, one of the points I make when I sell European football clubs, whether it's Chelsea or Man U, is there's more fans in Japan than in England, more Chelsea fans in Southeast Asia than right. in England, more in, more in China than in England, more in India than in England, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are really staggering in terms of the global audience for these things and what can be done with it. And obviously, the big difference with European clubs to U.S. clubs, they're not a franchise of a league. You can be a jerk and there's nothing they can do because you own your IP, you own your club. And you can do as much as you want with it outside of playing the, the, the league games. Another area that I think is going to be very, uh, very interesting for different reasons, and I could go on about sports for this whole half hour, but another area that I think is going to be very exciting, and I'm not sure when, is what is going to happen to broadcasters around the world? Their business is shrinking. Their audience is shrinking. They don't have the multiples or the capital to create streaming businesses of their own. And so you have these national champions, whether it's TF1 in France, whether it's Mediaset in Italy, whether it's ITV, Channel 4 in the UK. The government's been trying to sell Channel 4 in the UK now for a year and a half. I don't think there's any bidders. Pretty extraordinary. But those two topics are intertwined, right? The rights fee for sports is going to become too expensive for the broadcasters. And even, but remember, European countries often require 
a certain amount of sports to be broadcast over the air. But even that is not enough to save them because their margins are completely going away. I sat down with a large national broadcaster that used to be a monopolist. And in my world was traditionally a monopolist. I can't, won't tell you the country because I don't want to identify him. And the guy said, my sure. broadcast margins have gone down from 60% to 15%. My business is dying. I thought I had all these deals to control the talent, but Netflix and Amazon and all these guys are showing up and they're willing to pay two to three times for a director, an actor, a writer, a script, whatever it is. And my business is melting. And the only thing that I have left is my library. That sounds very familiar to Hollywood people. Let me tell you that. That's exactly what happened in the scripted world. And then it happened in reality. And That's then it's right. now going to happen in sports. I'll tell you one thing about the, one thing about the, script, about the Hollywood world, which is a contrast mm -hmm. to the big broadcasters. When the streamers all started, you saw a bunch of talent do these deals where they would get paid a big guarantee and be exclusive to the streamer for television or for film or one thing or another. Yep. Increasingly, having done that, the really good talent realizes you know what? I'd rather own back end. I'd rather build library. I'd rather own more of what I produce than have it all go to the, disappear on the streamer. You know, I work with an exceptional piece of t talent, a very, very famous writer director who just made a movie that launched on a streamer. And literally, it was a fantastic film, but the streamer didn't promote it at all. Spent $100 million on the movie, but didn't promote the film. And you couldn't even find it. I, I was so embarrassed because he said, did you see the movie? I said, I didn't even realize it had, it had dropped on the streamer yet. Oh, and man. so talent is increasingly finding some degree of frustration. And I think they'd, they'd rather work to some extent with traditional producers. Doesn't mean they won't have films going on streaming, but they're working harder at making them one off. And they're working harder at making sure that the streamer gets behind that film or that TV series in some, in some way, shape or form. And you're seeing that play out in the deal market. You're seeing the deal market reflect this shift. Well, it's not my deal so much because I rarely get involved in talent deals, but it's what I hear mm -hmm. universally from the agents and the managers. And it's my sense of what's, of what's going on. In the same way, I would tell you, you know, and, it, and, and look, it's awfully interesting. Look at Netflix, which is probably, in my view, the best of the streamers but at a clear disadvantage to Apple and Amazon because they only make money from selling streaming video. Um, so a couple of years ago, they announced uh, that their subs had basically flattened. The net ads had flattened out. They announced they were launching a gaming tier and they announced they were launching a store where you could buy shmatas from Stranger Things, which is all good ideas, but it shows that they had to grow ARPU instead of growing subscribers and the stock collapsed. One of the things I think you're going to see is amongst the streamers is deep catalog selling second windows, for example, because it's a way to generate incremental revenue. Even Netflix? I think they should. I would tell you. That well, everybody thinks they should, but they haven't done it yet. They haven't done it yet. But I think all the streamers are going to face increasing pressure for profitability. Look at Amazon. Amazon is very excited. And I, you know, I was just with the senior guy there who was all excited because by putting advertising on Amazon Video, Amazon Prime, he thinks it's going to, at minimum, add a billion dollars to the bottom line of Amazon. Oh, I believe that. I, I would say more. Yeah, more. I'm just giving you a conservative at minimum. So I think the streamers are being pushed to profitability. Obviously, the media companies are challenged, but the accelerated collapse of linear has really slammed the multiples on the big media companies, and there's no good answer. 
Paramount is probably 100% of its EBITDA comes from linear broadcasting. More than than 100% because their streaming service sucks and loses money, right? So more than 100%. So what happens there? In your view, what happens to Paramount this year? I know what's going to happen there, and it's going to get sold. But who is the better buyer for Paramount, and how does that play out? Because I I have a take on this. I I believe that for the long-term health and kind of ecosystem, a buyer like the Ellison family makes a lot more sense for Paramount because they will keep the studio, they like the business, they like making movies, and you figure out what to do with the streamer, shut it down or sell it, you figure out what to do with CBS and the cable networks, and then all of a sudden Paramount goes back to being a content arms dealer, provider, seller, whatever you want to call it, and it survives as a Hollywood studio. Some of these other buyers, I don't know if that happens. I don't know if it gets merged out of existence. I don't know if it gets flipped again in another two years. What do you think the pros and cons are for these different types of potential buyers? I think you, you're very astute in your observations about Paramount. But I will say, the, I, I, I won't comment on specifics other than to say the following, which is the people who feel best if you run around the big media companies today, are the Sony guys. They're high-fiving each other. Right. When Tony Vinciquera took over, that company was doing 100 million of EBITDA and 10 billion of revenue. Now they're going to do like a billion five of EBITDA. As an arms dealer, they're killing it, right? They have deep library. They have big franchise titles. They sell some stuff to streamers. They take some stuff theatrically. They have global distribution. They carve up some territories. That is clearly proving to be a winning strategy in a world where the profitability, getting to profitability on streaming is challenging for virtually everybody. The only one who says he can do it right now is Iger. And that's still a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, the great irony of Paramount, which I will say specifically is they spent so much time, money, and effort building out Paramount Plus, launching all over the world, doing all this stuff. You can even remember, by the way, which is kind of funny, we were involved in a bid for Showtime last January. And at least it was reported in the newspapers that we offered more than $3 billion. And we got turned down because they viewed it as more accretive to simply shut it down and merge it into Paramount Plus. So it wiped out the revenue. It wiped out $250 million of EBITDA. And now it's part of Paramount Plus. And that's great if you think Paramount Plus is worth anything. But the one thing I will guarantee you is there's not a single buyer of this company that is trying to buy this company to get access to Paramount Plus it will get shut down or it will get merged into another streaming platform and have an, a, in a, with, with a content license back that actually generates cash flow. And I don't know if anybody's, yeah, willing, to take, and I don't know if anybody's willing to take it on. No, the content is great. If, if, it was, if it was run as an arms dealer, which was the thesis that, you know, if some of us had been running Paramount a couple of years ago, we would have implemented. <laughs> but, you know, they chased the streaming business like a lot of other people. And some will succeed and some won't. I agree with you that Sony is sitting kind of pretty right now, but that's a short-term victory in some ways. Long-term, we know that when all of this shakes out and the consolidation happens, there will be three, maybe four, probably three global streaming services, and Sony will not own one of them. Doesn't that long-term challenge Sony? Because if there are only a couple buyers they're going to be pickier about buying stuff from Sony, potentially. I'm not so sure I agree with that part, although Mm -hmm. I do agree that at the end of the day, there'll be three, maybe four 
sort of surviving global streaming services out there. I think they'll continue to be niche streamers. They'll continue to be AVOD. They'll continue to be fast channels. They'll continue to be all kinds of ways in which people can consume content. They'll continue to be a broadcasting world where second and third windows are out there. And I wouldn't discount the massive library they have and the franchises that they control and their ability to do well for a long time as an arms dealer. Okay, that's fair. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. While I completely agree there'll be three, maybe four streaming services, and we can all put our piece of paper in a hat and guess which ones survive, a lot of the ones that are out there today are pretty small. And, you know, you should argue that Apple's will survive, but Apple is pretty small. And are they really committing the kind of money and focus corporately? Not really, not compared to what they're putting into their VR headset and their VR efforts. You know, is Peacock really a big move yet? Not really but I would never bet against Brian Roberts. He's very ambitious. I've worked with him a long time. And it'll be very interesting to see, see the critical question to me is, are we going to see media consolidation in a world where Lena Khan, who is Elizabeth Warren's protege, has already declared her opposition any kind of media mergers. And if you actually read her complaint against the FTC complaint against Amazon, and I actually read the complaint, I'm an ex-lawyer, there's nothing in the complaint mm-hmm that hurts consumers. Nothing. It's a completely novel reworking of antitrust law. And if she succeeds with the idea that anybody having dominant share in a market, whether it hurts or helps consumers, becomes irrelevant, she will fight tooth and nail against a Warner-NBC merger, a Warner-Paramount merger, and whatever they are. I want to push back a little bit on that because I think the regulatory issues are key here and will be an influence on how this plays out. Because a lot of the arguments that the government is making in opposing, let's say, the Simon & Schuster deal in the book publishing world was not necessarily that consolidation in that world would hurt customers. It was that it would hurt the market for authors. That is applicable to the Hollywood companies because you could make the argument that further consolidation will hurt the artists because there are fewer places to sell. I think you have to separate out studios from streamers, book public. there's lots of book publishers, there's lots of smaller book publishers. So I, the question is whether distribution matters, right? And that affects the market for artists having places to sell, which again, in my view, doesn't necessarily hurt the consumer. But I would argue that you're just going to have the, the law of simple economics in the absence of mergers, you're going to shrivel down to two or three streamers in any case, but that's not going to prevent, let's assume that Paramount does become an arms dealer and Sony's an arms dealer. Let's assume that Warner and NBC try to merge, fail. One of them will succeed. One of them won't. I don't think they will both succeed. 
So that, mm-hmm. that gives That's you three fair. large studios with significant library, significant production capacity, and own a lot of franchises struggling. And we'll make content, but we'll need to sell it to third parties who are streamers, AVOD, Fast Channel, you name it, right? By the way, it's, I'll tell you a very interesting thing that I learned this year that I didn't, hadn't thought about, but I've now heard this from enough of my clients that I actually am willing to believe it. And I don't think it's objective. I don't know whether it's objectively true or provable, but what I have heard consistently, which was interesting to me is if you think about Hollywood IP, sort of big franchise Hollywood IP, content that matters, content that can get remade, content that can get deployed across games, TV, film, consumer products, merchandising, etc. About a third of it is owned by Disney, about a third of it is owned by Warner, and the other third is split amongst everybody else. And it's one of the reasons why I remain pretty bullish. Obviously, I think Iger will do fine at Disney and he'll sort out his issues. Obviously, he's got to deal with his challenges on, in terms of linear contribution, his EBITDA. But I think you have a good management team at Warner, and I think there is so much IP there that they will thrive. They're, they've succeeded in dealing with the debt. Everybody talks about the debt. It's not really an issue. They're now, they've been paying down, quietly paying down the leverage from the AT&T spin. What I don't know is whether or not it gets acquired or combined, which it very well could, but it will be the core of a very, very large enterprise whether combined with NBC, combined with Paramount, or combined with somebody else. It's a shame also, by the way, because I wish the streamers saw value in buying these media companies. That would be the right logical thing, but they see no value in that. They can just go off and hire their own actors, directors, writers. You know, it's interesting. When, when we've talked to some of the streamers, give you an example, we sold the Raul Dahl catalog, the library of hundreds of books to Netflix, right? The whole point of that was there were no employees. There wasn't a 10,000-person studio in Burbank. It literally was pure IP that Netflix could absorb and then slice and dice and you know decide what to make with whom whenever they want. So it had virtually no cost to it, and that's why they were able to pay a spectacular multiple on the business. So it's a shame, but I do. I, I am hopeful there will be media consolidation. It's the right thing for these big companies. Frankly, if I had my druthers, I wish the, the government, which it never will do, but I would like to see the government, speaking of regulation, bring back some sort of FinCEN rules. Oh, you'd like to see that, but th- because that, that is anti-consolidation. I think they'd be great in a streaming environment because I think the problem you have today is that the little production companies, the independent production companies, of which there are many and of which we're invested in some, so uh, let me di- fully disclose that, mm-hmm. They sometimes they can preserve IP rights, sometimes they have to sell 100% of all territories, all windows to the streamer. I would like to see a situation where streamers were limited in terms of how much of 100% owned IP they could put on their service that they had to allow they had to bring on you know ha- had to limit licenses in the same way that the networks used to uh, be restricted by right. the Finn rules. So you say that you are pro consolidation and that you hope many of these media companies consolidate. Yet when the news broke last month that the CEOs of Warner Discovery and Paramount were chatting about a potential combination, the stocks of both of them dropped. So the market was essentially saying, please don't. Is that specific to those companies or is perhaps the market not as bullish on consolidation? 
I think the market is bullish on consolidation. I think the market is nervous about streaming. I think if somebody said, we're going to buy Paramount and get rid of Paramount Plus and become an arms dealer like Sony, I think stock prices would be rewarded. I think people are nervous about David rolling out Max, given the debt load, given the challenges of, again, his, con- his contribution, EBITDA contribution for linear. But I think as the streaming landscape settles out, I think consolidation at the, uh, amongst the studios makes a lot of sense. And it gives power to the content side. And at the end of the day, I'm a much bigger believer in content than I am in distribution. Always have been. Interesting. And you share my belief that the tech companies are just not interested in buying a studio. Like every, I, I'm so sick when people say, oh, it's only a matter of time. Iger is preparing Disney to be sold to Apple. It's like a done deal. They already know it's going to happen. I just said, what, what in Apple's history tells you that? I will put my reputation on the line and say, uh, you know, whatever, I'll eat my hat or it'll be a cold day in hell or whatever you want to say. None of the big tech companies in streaming are going to buy one of the big movie companies. I don't see it. It just doesn't make sense for them. Why? They don't need to. Yeah, they could buy all the content. They're making what they want to make. They license what they want to license. They're getting franchises. They're starting franchises. And uh, I don't see them taking on the infrastructure that these big media companies have, especially when so much of it is legacy linear and legacy, distri- legacy distribution of people selling content to broadcast stations in Poland and, and Malaysia. What about a company like Lionsgate? What do you think will happen to Lionsgate? They are about to separate Lionsgate, the studio, from the stars, the linear channel. This seems like a small-scale acquisition that another studio or a tech company could make to bring in some franchises. Is that a company that does make sense? I have tremendous respect for the two guys who run Lionsgate. I've known them for 20-plus years, and I've worked for them in the past. I'm not involved in the current deals. I was involved in selling stars to Lionsgate. And obviously, the thesis then was that by having their own distribution, they could help their content. Frankly, the opposite has been proven the case. And the debt they took on to buy stars ended up weighing down the stock and dragging it down into the single digits. Unable to spin off stars, what they, funny enough, they went, almost went in the opposite direction and spun off the studio. So the old Lionsgate mm-hmm. is now stars and owns a separately traded stock, which is the studio the hope will be that the studio can be an arms dealer that, and, and that by isolating the intrinsic value of the studio, which has a very, very cash-rich library, it becomes something that gets bought by somebody else. Yeah, I think that's the hope. That's the hope. But again, let's go back. Tech companies ain't going to buy them. And the big media companies don't have the cash or the multiple to pay the price that would make it appealing to buy Lionsgate. And there aren't a lot of franchises in the Lionsgate library. As much as I love them, as much as I think it's a great business, you're not getting Harry Potter. You're not getting, you know, Jurassic Park. You're getting Blair Witch Project. Well, John Wick, you're getting Hunger Games. You're getting some of that and some of that they don't own. And again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the details other than to say, I sure. wish them well. I hope they succeed as an arms dealer in this market, having woken up to the fact that Stars was probably a mistake. You know, and I think they went through a very tough time because Malone, they were going to be Malone's content company. And when he did the stars deal, Malone took a lot of Lionsgate stock and then quietly sold off all the stock. So they got kind of abandoned by Liberty 
and they're on their own. It'll be interesting to see, and I'm hopeful they succeed again because I root for content guys. I'll continue to root for content guys, right. and I hope they continue to extract better and better rents, which is you know out of the streamers, which is why again I'm probably supportive of some kind of re-engagement of FinCEN rules, which limit how much these streamers can actually own. Because today the streamers are trying wherever they can to bully the content guys and saying, great, I'll pay you cost plus. Even though you're doing all the work, yep. you're doing the creativity, you've got the imagination, you're, right, you're finding the writer, the showrunner, the director, I'm still only paying you 110% of what it costs. And if the thing turns out to be a hit, you own nothing. All right. I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. We will definitely invite you back if you will grant us that time. But give me your quick entertainment landscape in five years. What does it look like? How is it different from today? I think it's going to be very, very interesting in five years. I think you'll have three to four global streaming SVOD services. I think you will have mm -hmm. a plethora of niche services that are either local, um, sports-based, niche, niche, maybe like Criterion Channel or movie that have more sort of either classic or premium or special interest films. I think there's an some kind of an independent film concept that is away from the streamers because nobody cares about sort of, if you look at AMC buried within them is, you know, thousands of independent films that cost a few million bucks each. I think there'll be niche fast channels. I think there'll be all kinds of ways in which the internet will be used. There'll be TVOD where you'll be able to buy individual shows. If you don't want to pay for monthly subscriptions, I think there'll be some kind of rebundling whereby, you know, Apple is desperate for the days of the, of, of the Apple store, right? Of the iTunes store, where they could go, where they could yep. just say, everybody puts their content in, all the content is there, you charge whatever you want for it, and we take a big. They would love Apple TV to become that again, which is why I think they're holding back oh, on yeah. spending gazillions of dollars on Apple TV+. Plus. Apple TV+, Plus is interesting enough, but what they would like to be able to do is say, oh, you know, do what Amazon's doing, you know? Be on Amazon and subscribe to Showtime. Be on Amazon, subscribe to Max. Be on Amazon and get Hulu. One of the most interesting things with Showtime that we were excited about is the churn on regular cable TV for Showtime, for Showtime customers was pretty high. The churn on Amazon, bundled Amazon customers, was negligible, which made, which made us very mm. optimistic about a rebundling strategy. Now, ironically, Paramount Plus, I think, has significant, like six, seven, eight percent churn every month, which tells you they're turning over their entire customer base every year, which is, again, one of the reasons, as in any business that churns, like the old cable business, which had lower churn rates, but it's something that was a key indicator for financial analysts who would value, the, the, who would value how much a subscriber is worth and how much it costs to acquire additional subscribers, because you're spending all your money trying to get new subscribers, and that's why you look at a net ad number. Um, but I think you're going to see a pretty... I am not worried about seeing a diverse media landscape when it comes to distribution. I think there will be customers in different kinds of markets, including in the U.S., that want program channels that feel very comfortable with a fast channel ecosystem. I think there'll be some stub of traditional cable satellite left over, um, especially because this country sucks at getting broadband out to the broader population, especially in rural areas. I think that the, the, there will still be a very robust media environment, and there'll always be lots of lots of deals going on. I'm not worried about that. Well, that's good for you. All right, Joe Ravage, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited about Jon Stewart returning to The Daily Show? 
Do you think this will affect, because Jon Stewart was on Apple, that show got canceled. Do you think this will affect how popular Jon Stewart is on social media? Because as well, it stands right now, he was very popular on TikTok. And I think Jon Stewart actually has a great standing among young people on social media. Yes. And that is the real benefit here because, so he's going to be on, on Mondays only on the Daily Show through the election. So he's only on on Mondays? What's happening Tuesdays He's only Friday? on on Mondays. It's the Rachel Maddow strategy where they're putting Maddow on on Mondays and then other people the rest of the time. Jen Psaki does the same thing with her show on MSNBC. And Mondays are the biggest viewership nights for these shows. And it gives Jon Stewart a little bit of flexibility. He doesn't have to do the slog of every night. That was what Trevor Noah was complaining about when he left. And he gets to be relevant during the election. This was his whole thing. He got canceled at Apple because Apple didn't want his political views. They, you know, didn't want it to impact their hardware sales in China. And Paramount Global, the owner of Comedy Central, doesn't really care about that. And they desperately need some good news here because they are for sale and a bunch of people are looking at the company and at least now they can say they've got Jon Stewart back in the fold. I don't think investors really care about Jon Stewart, but my prediction here is that I don't think that Stewart is going to materially increase the ratings on Comedy Central. I think that ship has sailed. People do not watch these shows that way as they did in you know 2015 when he was last on the show. But... I think his currency on social media is the real goal here. He wants to be in the conversation. He wants young people to see his clips. And now he has a platform that will allow him to put out videos. And the real play here is for social media. He wants his rants against Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump and all these other people to go viral on social media, as his Apple show did sometimes. Yeah, it definitely did. And the challenge here is, is Jon Stewart going to be as relevant as he was nine years ago? You know, the media ecosystem has completely changed. The willingness of people who don't subscribe to your political beliefs to even watch you has changed. And is this just going to be angry Jon Stewart that we saw on the Apple show preaching to the choir? Or is he going to be able to reach young people and people who may not be, you know, hard, fast liberals with this show? I don't know. I think good news for him, good news for Paramount Global, not great news for linear cable. I don't think it's going to be a game changer there, but they'll probably sell a few more ads because of his name. So good for them. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Joe Ravitch. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. <laughs>